Hello and welcome to Starts and Grafts. I'm Conor Gafog and each week I'm joined by an emerging artist to discuss the highs and lows of forging a creative career amidst a global pandemic. This week I'm joined by a poet, performer and playwright, Ella Dormengeich. Ella's writing has been described by The Guardian as impassioned and I'm looking forward to discussing what it is she likes to write about and finding out some more about her upcoming one-woman show. Ella, welcome to the podcast. How are you? Hi, I'm very well, thank you. How are you? Yeah, not bad. This is actually the final episode of the series that we're recording now. So you are last but not least. Wow, I feel very (laughs) honoured. Thank you so much for joining me. Where are you actually joining me from today? Uh, I'm joining you from Shepherd's Bush in London. Oh, down the road. I'm in Chiswick. This is probably the closest podcast recording that we've done. I've been really excited to have this conversation with you because you're the first poet that we've had on the podcast or someone that describes himself within that realm. But there are also lots of other things that you do. How do you describe the creative work that you do and make to people? Wow. Starting Um, with big questions. That is a big question. I would say... I it started off writing it when I started off writing it was poetry and I just used it as a vehicle to express the things I felt passionately about um when I started I had a lot of feelings about for example feminism how girls are socialized how we're treated when we grow up and I just started expressing it through like angsty little poems in my bedroom as you do and it, they turned slowly but surely into longer spoken word pieces. And I have a background formally in theatre. That's where I started performing. I started off acting. Um, so it just seemed like a natural progression to start, attempt to start writing plays. And um, from then I studied script writing and performance at UEA. And that was great. And I've written a couple of full-length plays now, which also I feel do incorporate some of my poetic voice, I guess you could say. Like I like to flip between direct address, storytelling and dialogue. Um, Okay. So yeah, I'm very much still honing the craft of poetry, playwriting and performing. Uh, But yeah, I'm doing, I'm doing all three kind of thing. I went some years, I would just you know really concentrate one year like last year I was really concentrating on writing a play and then this last year it's been a lot more poetry stuff or like short form stuff um especially during the pandemic do you think that's because of the timing of what's been going on yes in terms of what it's allowed you to do absolutely I don't know why I guess like when the pandemic hit something I think a lot of people felt was this need to feel productive and write every day and, you know, really hone your craft because we have all this time now. But obviously it doesn't really work like that. Exactly. Like it's not like going on a writer's retreat. Like we're in the midst of of 
a crisis. So I felt it very difficult to like embark on a full length, you know, hour and a half long play because uh, I just didn't understand how the world would be when coming out of this and what to aim for, if you know what I mean, what theatre would look like. So, yeah, I started writing a lot more poetry than I had done in the years before. I've kind of dipped in and out of writing poems because I'm I'm a big, like, half-finisher with poems. Like, I'll write a first draft and then I'll leave it for, like, a year and then I'll come back to it. Um, so I've come back to writing that I'd kind of left and I'd started new stuff that I've always had ideas for. So that was really nice, but... Um, yeah, I tried to get over the pressure of needing to write every day because it can be quite intoxicating <laughs> having that pressure on yourself. I like what you just said there about you're doing all three kind of playwriting, performing and working as a poet, which gives us so much scope to talk about things that you've actually been up to because you've done quite a lot over this last year. But I want to almost start at the very beginning to kind of give people listening and myself a sense of your journey so far, if that's okay. Um can you remember what your relationship with poetry was like when you were growing up? Mm. Good question. So I can't remember this, but my mum told me that when I was a kid, I think I might have been like four or five when I was first writing little bits down. I think I was in a car or something and I'd written this like little poem, but it was kind of half poem, but half sounds. Okay. Because I was trying to make the words like sound similar to each other or rhyme. So I think it was like, I was swimming in the sea with a whale, da da blah, 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 fail or something like that. Do you know what I mean? But I didn't know the words to like fill in the gaps, if you know what I mean, when you're a kid. But you almost understood structure in a way. I almost was trying to make it sound like, rhythmical or something in the writing but half the words weren't words they were just like blah 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 yeah <laughs> if that makes sense but I can't remember that when my mum told me I did something like that I don't know if it necessarily rhymed um but poetry growing up I suppose at school I actually was very drawn towards poetry I know that there is a lot of cynicism around how poetry is taught in schools and I do agree with a lot of that because I think it it does need to change, especially like the demographic of the poets that we study at school. Like it's very white male and a lot of poems from, I don't know, the Second World War, which obviously is an important monumentous event. But do all poems that we study have to be about that? I don't know. So that was the majority. It feels like that though, doesn't it? It yeah. feels like that. And I think even when there was attempts to like diversify they still didn't really go far enough no. I mean in terms of studying poetry at school Benjamin Zephaniah is probably one of yeah. the only black poets that I ever remember yeah. studying I didn't actually study him um but I know a lot of people who did and he's incredible incredible poet and it's great that people do study him but um I think there needs to be more work done absolutely absolutely um but even so I was I was actually inspired by the poets that I did read at school um even if they were <laughs> majority white ma male it's quite divisive in school I think I think people either really take to it and enjoy it like you did and I think people really hate it. And it's funny, as, as someone that went on to study English literature myself, I couldn't stand it at school. I absolutely hated yeah. it. But I think it's the framework in which we're taught it and allowed to be creative. And I think the same applies to creative writing. And I was trying to have a think ahead of this conversation. And I remember doing creative writing and GCSE and everything. 
and we were always, always encouraged to write from the perspective of somebody else in order to hit those higher grades. I don't know if you ever had this. Mm. And it was like, from the outset, we weren't able to find our own voice. And I think what I wanted to ask you was, how long has it taken you to find your voice and approach towards, you know, poetry and what works for you? Wow, that's a big question. To be honest, I think I'm still in the process of finding my voice with poetry especially, I think because especially a lot of contemporary poetry and spoken word that we hear today, there is an assumption that the speaker is the poet. So the the speaker, as in the person performing the poem, is the poet themselves. So there's been a lot of autobiographical work in the last 10 years since the sort of birth of the popularity of spoken word and often going to spoken word nights there is a real you know sense of camaraderie and sense of like this is a safe space and we're talking about our feelings and our experiences and that's not always the case sometimes people do speak through different personas but that is more rare so I find it really interesting that you were just saying like at school we were taught to you know write through characters and now the kind of modern climate of especially poetry spoken word is a a real assumption that that poetry is written from an autobiographical perspective. Um, When I started writing poetry, I definitely did write from an autobiographical perspective. I mean, I started getting into Sylvia Plath, who is like, as depressing as she is, like she is like basically the founder of confessional poetry, I guess. And from that point on, it became it became so much more done that you would speak from your own perspective. But I don't think either one is better. Like, I I don't think you're a better writer if you're speaking for a character or you're a better writer if you're speaking from your own experience, your own perspective. It's just whatever vehicle you use to get across what you're trying to say. Like, sometimes I do write poems and, of course, I write plays majority of the time from other people's through other characters I'm writing through other characters but that's because they are they are articulating what I want to say through the play the characters are articulating what the message I'm trying to get across or the themes I'm trying to convey through the story and the characters um but sometimes I just need to write like a poem where I'm like splurging my own thoughts through my own personal perspective um but yeah so I guess I don't know if that answers the question but I don't think one should be regarded higher than the other but I I do actually think in poetry, sometimes it's quite nice to go back to just writing from a different character or writing about a different character and somebody who isn't yourself because I find that quite refreshing to see that because a lot of the time in poetry, you do get a lot of people just speaking from their own perspective. And I like to see variety in poetry, definitely. So we, we talked about this a little bit earlier on then, but let's dive a little bit deeper into the kind of things that you do like to write about and your inspirations behind them? Wow, yeah. Um, So I write, majority of the time I'm writing about women and the experience of being a girl or a woman and the constraints in, I guess, mostly in like a personal sense, like either the internal constraints of being a woman, but how they are also impacted by society at large. (laughs) It sounds quite big uh big things but um with my first show that I wrote fringe show was a poetry slash theater show um about my experiences but also experiences of my friends uh growing up 
um, from girl to woman kind of thing, like dodgy periods or clothes not fitting you in the same way anymore and just kind of dealing with that and trying to fit into this mold that society had given you and worrying that you're not quite fitting into it. But then first play that I wrote, Divided, which was actually meant to be on last year, um, is about two women who, one is living in 1940s slash 50s post-war Britain, and then one is living in the modern day. And it's exploring how similar inequalities persist in our modern day today as they did then, but new ones have arisen. So it's kind of doing that, but through the personal is the political, in my opinion, kind of resembling maybe big questions, but in a very personal way and people's personal experiences in their day-to-day lives. That's what interests me. I think that always makes it more personable, like you said, and digestible and kind of easy to connect with from an audience perspective. That's what I always feel as an audience member. Are there particularly, you mentioned Sylvia Plath, are there particularly any voices and female voices that you've always been inspired by or turned to, you know, that have kind of stood out along your journey so far? Yeah, so in terms of poets, definitely Holly McNish. She was my favourite poet when I first started writing myself uh, because how she so perfectly articulated just being a woman and exactly as you just said, like she's very personable and she the way you watch her performing her poems and you immediately understand what she's talking about and they're almost thoughts that you've had, but she's articulating them and expressing them in, in such a succinct, interesting way. Um, and I think she's, yeah, she's a great, she's a great poet and she's actually got a new book that's coming out soon. Um, yeah. She's amazing. Um, Ella actually showed me one of her pieces recently and it's escaped my mind completely, the title of it, but the delivery is just incredible. Mm-hmm. Like, it's so sharp and... Oh, like I said, I can completely understand why you would choose that as someone that has been a real inspiration for yeah. you. Yeah, and at the moment I'm reading, rereading Rachel Long's new book, uh, My Darling from the Lions, and she's an incredible poet. I was very lucky to go to a guest workshop run by her when I was part of the Apples and Snakes writing room, and she's really inspired me recently. Um, I also really enjoy reading Cecilia Knapp's work. Um, yeah, so in terms of poets, there's such a wealth of both performance and stage poets that are easily accessible at the moment because you can read their work online or listen to it. Um, so yeah, yeah, definitely amazing, amazing amount of female writers. And you even run poetry workshops yourself now. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about those. What kind of things are you supporting people with during those sessions and bringing out of them? Yeah, uh, so I run a spoken word and poetry event called Off the Chest, which used to run at the Highland in Myland. And since the pandemic, we've really branched out to doing workshops as well as online open mics. So I've run a few of those and it's always so great to engage with a whole group of poets who want to people who just want to write um and I I honestly when I started doing them I felt quite nervous because a lot of poets a lot of big established poets had started doing free workshops so like Cecilia Knapp 
and a few others and I've been going to theirs and they've been so inspiring and I really has you know pushed my writing in new directions so I was like okay I'm gonna do these I'm gonna do some myself and it's quite nerve-wracking um but yeah I took I took inspiration from the workshops I'd been going to and I guess the activities they were doing and put my own spin on them I think it's down to reading a lot of poems and kind of looking at a poem and being like how can this be used to inspire someone in a workshop and used for a prompt so I suppose the workshops that I've done are more looking at poetry looking at poems and discussing them a little bit and then giving a prompt inspired by that poem um they're very much based around that format at the moment but um I really do want to go into uh you know discussing with people more one-on-one giving more space for people to perform their work that they've written there and then or you know maybe a more longer term thing where we work on pieces I don't know it's I'm at the um I'm at the birth of it at the moment. I've just really started getting into it. I had run workshops in real life before, but um, it's it's different doing it on Zoom. It is different doing it on Zoom. And I think it actually has its advantages sometimes. And I think poetry is the one thing that's managed to really thrive in the pandemic, um, as opposed to, I don't know, music or theatre. Yeah, in what way? Because those things rely so heavily on being in a space, a live space and watching because that's kind of what defines theatre I would say because yeah. it's there you're in real life you're watching it so as much as I've, I've loved watching streamed shows and plays it's just you don't get that same atmosphere and community as going into a theatre and I think you do have that with poetry nights but what I love about poetry on online is that you can just so easily click you know log on and get involved in a poetry workshop And it's almost, I mean, it's almost a similar experience as if you were going to a poetry workshop in real life. Okay, yeah. And you're just doing it from your bedroom. And it's, with theatre, you have to set up these big sets and rehearse and it's months and months of, you know, production and stuff like that. But with a poetry workshop, it's all quite stripped back anyway. So you can replicate it quite well on Zoom. And it means you can instantaneously connect with people from around the globe, not just in your local area. So that's what I really like about it. I hadn't thought of it like that, but when you mention it being stripped back and there's not that production value, it really is kind of within the text and sometimes the performance. Mm. Is that something that you think will stick around for a long time then within the poetry scene and world? Absolutely. I think the pandemic has changed that for the better almost because off the chest, we're going to go back to doing live in real person events soon, hopefully, fingers crossed towards the end of this year. But actually, we've spoken about continuing online workshops, like purely just online workshops, because then we can continue to engage our audiences who have got involved with us from across the country, not just in our little bubble in London. Mm. As much as I love the poetry scene in London, like it can often cut off poets from up north or in Edinburgh or Wales or because it's just so far to travel to get to London and 
there are lots more poetry events in London than other parts of the country. And that's not to say that there aren't great poetry scenes in other parts of the country. There are, but sure. I feel like London nights can be a bit London centric and not kind of think about the wider poetry scene outside of London, if you know what I mean. So we really want to pull in more poets from around the country. And I've really felt so rewarded being able to engage with more poets from around the country. It's been amazing. There's just so many chances to collaborate and showcase people from different areas I think Mm. Uh, you mentioned off the chest which is something that I definitely want to talk about because it's like you said a poetry night that you co-founded and host what made you want to set up your own poetry night you know how did you get to that stage yeah so I think I was just really keen (laughs) so I moved to London and it was one of the first poetry events I went to boxed intimate which is run by Sean Mahoney and Cecilia Knapp, two poets who I really like. And it's a sort of spin-off night to Boxed In, which is a really big poetry night um, in Shoreditch. And I met Ifty, uh, who I now run off the chest with, at that night. And we just like really got along. We were just talking about poetry, the nights we've been to. And I was going to go to another night. So I was like, oh, do you want to come with me? And then we just, you know, continued chatting and He'd just recently self-published a book of poems that he'd launched at the Highland Bar in Mylend. And he was like, they really want me to put on an event there, like a monthly poetry event. And I was like, oh, cool. I've always wanted to run like my own poetry event. Like, because I have, like, I'd run like little events here and there and help produce poetry events at university and stuff. But um, I just love the atmosphere of a poetry night. I feel like, it's so inclusive and everybody I feel from an open mic space feels so heard and it's almost like you're instantaneously making friends and as a newbie to London who didn't know that many people it was just so great being able to go to poetry events and like immediately make friends like you go there alone and you come out like with a group of friends almost because everybody's sharing their work and being so vulnerable So I feel like it's a perfect environment for people to just make friends and be there for each other. So me and Ifty became friends quite quickly. And then he was like, hey, you seem like a cool person. Do you want to host this night with me? And I was like, sure, why not? And then it, it literally went from there. Like We met in... September and our first event was in October. Quick turnaround, wow. It was very quick. <laughs> we literally just like put all the stuff together. I was like, I'll make a little logo and and uh, we got a graphic designer to do a, a little bit of graphic for us and we set up the Instagram. That's the key thing <laughs> then, for anything these days, isn't it? Setting up the Instagram. Exactly. That was like us with the podcast. Yeah, yeah it's when you know it's official, right? Do you do, is it a monthly event, did you say, or a weekly event? It's monthly. Monthly. Yeah. And when are you looking to get back in, in person, get back going again? Well, it's been pushed back and back and back, as with many things. Uh, We are hoping provisionally it's going to be the second half of 2021. So probably September, October, hopefully. Um, But honestly, I couldn't give you any certain dates yet because everything is sort of on hold um because our we, we don't know what's happening with our venue and because of the pandemic obviously a lot of venues have really suffered so we just need to you know 
we've got work to do basically but so I can't reveal anything yet (laughs) I'm sure wherever it is and whatever happens the demand of people wanting to get involved will be massive Mm -hmm. fingers crossed for that Mm -hmm. but you've been really lucky enough with your poetry to perform at quite a range of different locations haven't you you've taken quite a few things up to the fringe both in Edinburgh and in Brighton Um, one of the first shows that you did was did I choose these shoes which I believe won an award or two Oh, yeah. So I actually initially, when I was forming the idea um, five years ago now, uh, I applied for the Pebble Trust Talent Grant Award. It is an award. And uh, like, it was literally just the first draft of the script slash show, um, which was very short at that period. And I just pitched the idea to them. And yeah, I I guess I won it. I, I don't know, like three people get given this grant and then they help you and give you mentoring to put on your first show for Brighton Fringe. That was five years ago. And that was a great experience. And then the following year, I took it to Edinburgh Fringe. And yeah, it was a great experience. It was a great way of just learning not only how to you know write a full-length show, but also how to produce your own show for Fringe because it's very much do-it-yourself, you know, DIY theatre. And I think it really, it taught me so much about how much is required of someone to put on a theatre show. Like where I am in my career now, like I'm very much collaborating with other artists, lighting designers or sound designers and stuff. But back then I was very much just doing all those bits and bobs myself and wondering why I was so stressed out. I was like, oh, why am I so stressed? Because generally you do need more collaborators in the mix. But I think I was young and I was just like, oh, I haven't got much money. I'll just do this myself. But it's true though, isn't it? It's a skill set that everyone completely underestimates and doesn't think about when they see you up there performing that script or that poetry that you've written. They forget the complete legwork and the amount of stuff that you've had to do in preparation to even get there. It's ridiculous. And do you feel much more comfortable with that now? Um... Yes, I do in a way, but I've learned not to put too much pressure on myself now and learning, I guess, learning about all the different elements of theatre, like sound design, uh, lighting design, all the backstage nitty gritty things like production and you learn about them. So then you know kind of what you want, if that makes sense. You understand better what your taste is and what you want and what you would like in a collaborator and yeah. who you want to work with. So I think it was a great um, formative experience producing my own show. And obviously it wasn't, I'm making it out like it was just me single-handedly. Of course it wasn't. Um, like I had an incredible theatre in Brighton actually, which sadly isn't there anymore, which was formerly called The Emporium. And I also worked with two friends who were um, doing dance, physical theatre on the production. So it wasn't just me, it was me and two friends. Oh, cool. Incredible dancers. And we rehearsed together and they gave me feedback as well. Um, so it was, there was like collaboration involved, but yeah. So that's kind of a starting point And we're going to look a little bit later on at some of the exciting work that you've got coming up. But probably one of your most recent kind of projects from the pandemic was an audio piece called A Bloody Shambles. Yeah. Was that something that you'd written during lockdown? And tell me a little bit more about what it was. Yeah, so actually it wasn't something I'd written during lockdown. It was a play I'd written a couple years ago. Like the first draft of it was a couple years ago and it was just a short five minute monologue 
But then it grew. I was like, oh, I really want to come back to this and work on this. Um, and I was writing it for, I had in mind like a, uh, a short play evening. So I'd kind of written it and then the pandemic hit. So I was like, oh, well, I can't really put this up for anything because there aren't any play evenings. Well, there were, but I was, wasn't sure if it would suit like a Zoom sort of performance. Um, mm. So then I was like, oh my God, this would work as an audio play. So I just started reading some audio plays and familiarizing myself with it a bit more. Like I'd learned how to write, I'd written an audio play before at uni and but I feel like I never really had a full full grasp on how to write one. I was like, I don't know if this is my format. I don't know. It's a new, it's very different writing an audio play to writing a play. So I was, I just basically looked at it and I was like, okay, like what are the sounds going on in this? Like, how can I translate this into more of like an inner monologue rather than a monologue monologue? Because I think that's something that audio really lends itself well to is you can place yourself inside the head of a character a lot better. Mm. So I, I just adapted it basically in lockdown from a, a monologue, a monologue for stage into a audio play. And it was a really great experience. And then I applied to the Living Record Festival and they liked the idea and they went from there and it got put on at the Living Record Festival. Uh, I will also say that I <laughs> I had another uh, short audio play produced for that festival as well that I, I co-wrote with Cameron Essam, which we worked with a group of uh, four other actors, which was also a great experience. So suddenly, I don't, I don't know why I go in, in these phases of applying for everything and then I get too many things that I'm doing and I was really stressed in January recording all these audio plays. But it was a great learning experience. I really enjoyed it. And what was a bloody shambles about? Because I know that 40% of ticket sales went to a bloody good period, I think, which is the charity fighting against period poverty. So what was, you know, was that relatable to the piece, I'm guessing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, I'll explain a bit more about the piece. So it's about a girl named Jess who has a very tumultuous relationship with her her mum. And um, she's in a situation where she simply can't afford... Uh, sanitary basic sanitary products so it's exploring that and it's just one day in her life and it, it yeah explores themes of period poverty and also taboos around menstruation and yeah how we don't talk about it enough I hope it brings that to light anyway but it's just through her journey this one day without wanting to give too much away uh but yes yeah well yeah (laughs) I don't want you to completely reveal what it is because people need to go and check it out still um but I think yeah we've talked a lot about things being personable and using characters to bring these issues to light Mm. and I think that's such a good way of doing it and what I want to do now is just feature our artist advice for the week, which comes from a storyteller and spoken word artist from Liverpool who performs under the name Roy. He's had an incredibly interesting lifestyle and very colourful, let's put it that way. Um, and he actually says himself that his fall was broken by the net of creativity. So we got in touch with him and he shared a few words, which I'm going to share now. He said, be responsible for 100% of your 50% enjoying what you do and being good at it. The rest will look after itself. There are no rules really though. Do what the fuck you want. Be inspired by everything. Shit telly, bad clobber, queuing in Aldi, arguing with your therapist, family dynamics, and bridging that gap between who you think you are and who you really are. Also, 
edit like a bastard. <laughs> <laughs> Some really like funny and interesting points there that he shared with us. And we've talked about what inspires you. But I'm interested in what he said about there being no rules and doing what the fuck you want. When you have an idea or a concept, are there rules that you consider before pursuing it? Or do you just run with it? Yes, there are rules that I consider and I feel like sometimes I'm a bit too harsh on myself about those rules and artists definitely can be. I think the issue is when you first start creating, you first start writing, you're just doing out of the complete love of it and the joy of expressing yourself. But then when you grow up and you realise you want to do this for a career and you start reading, as I've done, lots of books on playwriting and script writing and um, a particular book I love is Into the Woods by John York. And it taught me so much about script writing, but at the same time, it made me feel really insecure as well because I was like, ah, that's what I've been doing wrong. <laughs> In what way? Uh, because, well, I think especially with script writing and poetry, in a way, there are certain rules there are certain ways that you can make a perfectly laid out script and a perfectly structured script. Yeah. And I don't necessarily think all of them have to apply to every idea. Absolutely not. And I think you need to take your own artistic initiative with a lot of most of the things you write, but you also have to be aware of the rules in order to break them. And I do, I do definitely agree with that phrase. Uh, so I'm just kind of feeling out now, like trying not to be insecure about a piece of work if it doesn't conform to every you know trick in the book because it's impossible to do that right, okay. so I, I do resonate what we what he just said there that there are no rules because if every play followed the perfect play rise and fall and and structure like like many Hollywood films do for example it does start to get quite predictable so you still want to surprise your audience you don't want to conform to everything that you're taught you want to make your own rules yeah, yeah. but it, it's a difficult balance to harness and I'm still learning I'm still learning as well I can completely imagine and I think in terms of inspiration though I do really get the sense that if something is important to you and it's not necessarily something that a lot of people are creating work about you're very much happy to go with it and try and create something that puts that viewpoint or puts that conversation out there for example, so you've got a piece coming up um, very soon, which is a one-woman show that you've written called Until He Comes, which you are performing at the Camden People's Theatre on the 13th of July, which must be incredibly <laughs> exciting. Has me just mentioning that date give you the sense of like a ticking time bomb? <laughs> Absolutely, it does. Oh my God, I'm so scared. It must be incredible though to have like a live venue booked with the date ready to go. Yes, it is. It absolutely is. And I'm very thankful. And it is what going to be a work in progress performance. And this is a play that's actually very much more autobiographical. I'm going back to more autobiographical work, having written a couple of plays that are completely different characters, not myself at all. And I just kind of felt the need to return to that. And it's it's a piece about um, it's a piece about a sexual journey, basically. And um, obviously a lot of the experiences are embellished. It's not totally, completely true to life the whole way through. And it's it's a comedy as well. But there are deeper themes explored underneath the comic events that happen. It's just about the ridiculousness of, of how we see sex, how we perceive sex as, and then the reality of sex, which are often two very different things and how a lot of that isn't really catered towards women and female pleasure um 
from my experience and I know a lot of people I know and and especially based on how we're taught about sex as well and how it's resembled in in a lot of pop culture uh, so it's it's sort of exploring those themes, but through one perspective. And this is a series of monologues. Yeah, or... it's almost it's it's a series of monologues. Um, but there is there is one narrative that runs through it. So yes. Because I think I saw a kind of similar or an incarnation of it yes. that you've done for an online festival. Oh, you did cool. Yeah, which I watched and it was hilarious, and I thought it was brilliant. Oh, and thank yeah, you. there's certain scenes in there that I can completely understand you know, what you're suggesting in terms of this idea of sex and then what the reality of it is from watching the piece. So it must be really exciting to get that out there in front of an audience. Because as well, is it related to the incredible title of one of your pieces, which is The Tory Who Came On My Face? (laughs) Which I've heard a lot about from our producer Ella, because I think you performed that at a night that she was also performing at. So is it that where it's kind of grown from? Yeah, so that was the first piece I wrote about a experience that I had. (laughs) And the title of the piece does double up as the synopsis as well. (laughs) (laughs) I mean... That's pretty much what happens without, I mean, it's not really, it doesn't really matter if I give that away. But um, yeah, so that's going to actually be part of the show. That's going to be part of the show. And yeah, so that was the kind of the fledgling performance, I suppose you could say, that was at the Arcola. And that will be um, at some point within the show, yes. But um <laughs> I'm still writing the show and still, um, you know, um, it's still in construction, but I want to continue exploring as close to life, as close to my life and experiences that I'm taking from as possible. So with that piece, it's very, it was very physical. I'm like physically acting out everything that's happening on stage and obviously it's a, a little bit slapstick going on as well, but I I won't give too much more away, but yeah. Do you always tend to steer towards comedy when exploring these topics? No, so not at all. Oh, really? Well, this is, I would say this is the first comedy. Because you do it so well, that's why I sound surprised. Oh, thank you. It sounds like it's something that I assumed would be your natural go-to way of presenting something. I'm very glad that you think that because I do feel a sense of slight imposter syndrome when it comes to comedy because I would never get on stage and do a stand-up comedy set for example I find that terribly exposing and I have a lot of respect for people who can do that because that is the art form I feel most terrified of which is why I think I like scripted theatre performances and doing it through the medium of play Yes, it, it is comedic and there is there is comedy involved, but it's not just relying on the comedy, if you see what I mean. There's also the narrative behind it and the, the deeper themes that are touched on. And mm. there's hurt there. There's, yeah. there's tragedy there as well within but lying behind the comedy because it's the tragedy in how in how somebody's being treated unfairly. You can laugh at it and then you can realise afterwards or during or watching it like, oh, this is actually quite not not (laughs) quite horrible. But I often think laughing opens you up to thinking about things. Um, But no, this is the first play I would say that I would actually say this is a comedy. Like with other plays, it's been... So my two other plays that I've written, they do incorporate comedic elements, but I wouldn't label them 
as comedies. Do you think it's quite daunting? Because when you do that, you're setting out a level of expectation that the audience Mm, are going to have. Exactly, exactly. That's the scary thing is that you call something a comedy and then nobody laughs (laughs) the whole way through. But Until He Comes is taking part in the Calm Down Dear Festival, isn't it? It's a bigger collection of works, which is three weeks of female theatre, which must be an incredible thing to be a part of, Mm. I think, as we come out of the pandemic as well and conversations that have been happening. So that must be really nice. And you've written it, written it, you're starring in it. Are you essentially directing it as well? No, so um, director called Phoebe Wood is directing it. And she also directed the digital play that you saw, the shorter version of Until He Comes, which was on for Brainchild's Digital Hatch. So she directed that. um, And then she's going to be directing this as well. And she's an amazing director. So... You should go and check her out, anyone listening. Thank you so much. It's been really interesting talking about what you've been up to and what you've got coming up. And I'm looking forward to seeing things on social media and seeing what's happening with those performances. As we come to the end of the conversation, my last question is one that I ask everyone who comes on the podcast. And it is a very big question. So looking back on your creative journey so far, if you could go back, what advice would you give yourself? Okay. I really like this question and I'm glad you've asked this question to me uh, because I was actually thinking about this the other day. I was like, oh, if I was to go back to younger Ella and give her a little nugget of advice, um, just go to everything you possibly can get your hands on. Go, 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 turn up, turn up. I would never have met Ifdi and formed Off the Chest if I hadn't have gone to that one poetry night. I would not be doing the Camden People's Theatre thing if I had not started talking to somebody from Camden People's Theatre. Do you know what I mean? Like, you've just got to talk to people and go to poetry events, go to the theatre, go Mm. to spaces where you think you will meet people who are like-minded who are creative, who have similar loves and passions to you, and you never know what could happen. And I know that advice does seem quite daunting as well. Like it can be scary meeting new people. And I definitely feel that as well. But if you constantly surround yourself in these spaces, you will get what you put out, if that makes sense. Uh, I do strongly, strongly believe that. So yeah, just as many online events even, obviously it's very difficult in this climate, but going to online workshops, going to poetry events when they start up again, going to, I don't know, like a little acting class or just as long as things are accessible and they are, you can find accessible ways of still being involved in in the arts, then yeah, just try and go. (laughs) I don't know if I've said that enough, but yeah. I think... No one is going to forge those relationships for you. And it's really important to put yourself out there, like you just said, and take advantage of what is available online or on your doorstep, because there really is things out there that are Mm. are just waiting for people to be engaged with. But yeah, thank you so, so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. I've had so much fun. I want to say a huge thank you to Ella for joining me on the podcast please go and check her out online where you can find more information about her upcoming projects. This is the final episode of the series and we want to thank you all so much for tuning in each week. Don't forget to follow us on social media at Starts and Grafts on Twitter and Instagram where you'll be able to find more information about what we've got in the pipeline. 
But in the meantime, I've been your host, Connor. Ella's been your producer. And we'll hope to see you all again very soon. But until then, take care. Thank you.